This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Everybody, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And hey, girl. What's up? Hey. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. We're here to talk about movies again. I know. It's it's the thing we do. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, I don't know. What's going on with you? I've been doing okay. I'm doing okay. I've actually been like carving out time to read and I'm writing my next book, which is um, going to be about the four years I lived in Alaska. Mm. And it's kind of great because <laughs> my first, so my first book was a memoir. It was very chronological. And <laughs> I think this book is going to be essays, which is so much easier to write. And it's bizarre how much easier, how something could feel easier to write. Yeah. But then I realized like, oh, I'm not mining my my deepest childhood issues. So of course it's going to be easier to write. <laughs> yeah. And is it the idea that it's an essay form? Is it kind of, it's that you can tell the story in smaller pieces and that feels more manageable or something. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be chronological. So I don't have, I'm not going to have to be like pressed to remember very specific dates and times and you know, all that stuff. I can kind of just tell the funny story and, and have that be that. So I'm very excited about that. And I, I think it's um, it's weird that in the course of my day, even though writing is my profession, I have to carve out time to do it amongst all the other crap I do during the day. Do you write every day or? I try to like I, tr- I try to write for myself every day. So I have a journal yeah. that I write in every day. Um, but it's hard to find time to write for work. It's really, it's really weird. It's really weird. But I think what's weird, what's weirder still, I've got to stop saying weird. I said it like 25 times. Um, uh, <laughs> what's weird? I, I do know words. <laughs> it's weird, <laughs> but I know words. Um, I think that um, what I'm noticing is that it's, it's, even though it's harder to carve time out, it's easier to write when I sit down to do it because I'm just so so much more calm here. Like it's actually as peaceful as I imagined it would be. So that's really, really nice that I get to just kind of sit and write. And even if it's only an hour or two, it's always nice. And it feels better. Like it feels better doing the actual process of writing. And I got my library kind of almost done. I know. I saw you're you're famously a person that has said on this podcast many times that you refuse to show the inside of your house to people, right? Yes. Uh, and I, that's one of the best things about you. God, I'm not going to lie. I uh, love that level of like dedication to mystery. <laughs> um, but when you and I were having a meeting, like you and I meet every week just to kind of, you know, chit chat. I mean, we talk as friends all the time, but then we actually yeah. sit down and have like a weekly meeting to discuss the podcast and just other work stuff. And, um, 
you usually do your zoom from outside, which I love because it's so like beautiful and bucolic. And there's like sometimes animals in the background. And I'm just like, where the fuck is this paradise? Cause I'm not in that environment whatsoever. And I usually do them from outside because that is where I get the best internet service at my house. Oh, really? So I have to take every phone call out there, every Zoom call. <laughs> yeah. I, w- I will tell you right now, without revealing the location of where I live, if I went outside <laughs> and took a Zoom call, you would see my neighbor's broken down ice cream truck. <laughs> so... <laughs> quite a different scene (laughs) but that would be the best zoom background they would telegraph so much like "Hmm, how's millie feeling today why is she in a junkyard for work (laughs) who is selling a rusty choco taco next to her face um so for whatever reason this past meeting we had you did it inside and it was in the library yeah and i was like i mean i was like oh my god where is she she must be in like the library of congress or something it looks so (laughs) gorgeous in there and you're like oh these are my new shelves built-ins right they were built-ins yeah i had these um custom bookcases made there's a room in the front part of my house that's too small for like a living room okay but it felt too big to just leave empty and use as storage so i thought you know what? When I saw this house and I looked at that room, I said, you know, I have always wanted my own library and I'm going to get it. Hell yeah. <laughs> and I budgeted for it. And I called a local woodworker and um, he was so lovely and so skilled and just so charming. He came to install the, the bookcases with his wife. Like she helped him unload from the truck. Cute. And I was like, do you want to sell, sir? Do you want to hang out? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> They were adorable. And yeah, and the and he the measurements were perfect. Like he measured for both um, hardcover, softcover. The shelves are movable. Um, but I asked him to use paint grade wood so I could paint them myself. And I painted the room black, um, the ceiling and the walls. Yes. Wow. And then I painted the cases black, but I left the maple trim on the front showing. So it just looks really nice and comfortable and cozy and that's exactly what I wanted like I wanted a dark cozy room to read in and because my my eyes are are always I'm going to be wearing glasses for the rest of my life I got a nice light to kind of like an angled floor lamp to hang over the back of my reading chair so I always have a bright spot when I read but the rest of the room is cozy and the best part of the library, which I, I can't show anyone yet, not even you, uh, mm. <laughs> but I will when I can. I am having the I finally found a fucking contractor who returned my calls and showed up to my house. <laughs> it has been the bane of my existence the past three months to try to get someone to come here to do any work. Oh and I think they're overwhelmed because I'm like, hey, yeah. I got like a bunch of bathrooms and bedrooms and this and that and blah, blah. And I just go through the list and I have stopped doing that. I'm just like, hi, I have a house I want you to work on. Bye. <laughs> you'll see. You'll see when you get here if you want to take the job or not. But I finally found this great contractor who, P.S., at the end of our meeting, he was like, he looked at the library and he was like, what do you do for a living? Like, I guess get the feeling that people don't see books here a lot because even the woodworker was like, I don't build bookcases a lot anymore. Um, mm. So he looked in the library and he was like, what do you do for a living? And I was like, I am a writer. I write for television and I write books. And he's like, oh, I used to be a child actor. And I was like, huh? And he's like, yeah, my, my first uh, movie was Sweet Charity. 
with Shirley <gasps> MacLaine. What? And he was, yeah. And he's like, and I was in network. What? And I was like, huh? I'm like, I also have a fucking movie podcast. <laughs> That's amazing. But he's just he's so sweet and so fun. And he's going to frame out in the library. There's a closet in the back corner of a wall. And everyone, this is the thing about my house. Everything that was done in terms of like construction and renovation by the previous owner, they did it themselves, mm. but they had like no sense of aesthetic. It looked like everything was done in a fever. So every closet in this house is like just a two by four nailed across a wall with some like cheap doors attached to it. Oh boy. <laughs> and some like white racks thrown inside. And I was like, this is depressing. I can't. So I'm taking the closet out and this contractor is going to frame out that wall. And then the guy who built my bookcases is building me a secret door. Well, I guess not so secret anymore door. Um, so it'll look flush, like it'll continue to look like a flush bookcase. Oh, my gosh. But then when you press a secret lever, boop, that thing's going to pop open. And I'm going to put a little reading bench and a lamp in there for my goddaughter. Damn, man. That's the fucking dream. Yeah, like she's into like mystery secret stuff right now. So I feel like I'll do that for her for now. And you're doing it for you. Don't get it twisted. You want a secret headquarters. Oh, yeah. I'm going <laughs> to like when when she's sick of it, I'm just going to like put a lock on the inside, like a combination lock on the inside and make it a panic room. Yeah. I'll be like me, me and Carrot. Put Carrot underneath the bench. <laughs> I'll be in there with some books. See you in two years. <laughs> You need your like secret knives out lair. Like, come yes. on. Who wouldn't yes. want that? So it, it's for your goddaughter, but it's for you too. But it's for me too. And uh, it is like a level of the game that I really aspire to. Not going to lie, because <laughs> I could only dream to have built in bookcases at this point because I'm not quite doing like the college thing where you have like crates <laughs> yeah as shelves or something like that <laughs> like cinder blocks and a plank <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> so, or uh two by fours with um uh, like one of my old roommates used to do you know those like frosted tiles that they put like sometimes in 80s bathrooms yes those like little squares like those big cube tiles <laughs> Yes. One of my roommates in college, um, she she had a shelf that was made of those. And I was like, wow, this is a look. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm not quite doing that, but I'm not at like built ins yet because I still rent. So I'm not going to like right. build fucking bookcases <laughs> in a house that I don't own. No, but when you when you buy a house, I think like when you're ready, it's a nice it's a, it's just nice to do, to still kind of do that room of your own thing. Like I try to live in the whole house as much as I can, mm -hmm. but I like having a little cozy space and I like having, especially because my house is under so much construction. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of nice to think that like, that's what I wanted. That's what I did. Like I was able to, it's a reminder to me that, you know, I was able to buy this house and do this all on my own. And like, I just feel proud of myself when I sit in there. Dude, good for you. I mean, honestly, like, who's the designer that had the famous, is it Carl Lagerfeld who had the famous bookshelves, you know, floor to ceiling, not just like a 10 foot ceiling, but even probably yeah. higher than that with the sliding ladder. I was like, oh, I uh, love it so much. That's the next dream. If I could do that. I, I truly, 
I would be overwhelmed, but I would love to be overwhelmed in a room like that. But yeah. this is like, this is a nice, it's a nice thing I did for myself. And I kind of, I tried to space it out so that I wouldn't instantly fill all of the shelves with books. Yeah. Cause that's the kind of the point is like, I want to grow into the room as I grow into the house. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of space for me to buy books. And it's kind of nice to to remember now that I don't have to like instantly sell or get rid of all of my books because I'm going to be moving in a year or moving across country. Like I'm here Ugh. now. I can have all the goddamn books I want for the rest of my fucking life. Oh, yeah. I think when I made the cross country move, I must have con married a bunch of books. <laughs> <laughs> I try, um, but every book brings me joy. I don't buy a book that doesn't bring me joy. Yeah, I mean, listen, I remember when there was a big debate about that, like people being like, I can't yeah. believe she's telling people to get rid of books. Who is she? What a monster. Um, but on some level, I understood it because when it comes down to it, there were books that I just, I read and will never read again. Like to be completely yes. honest with you, I'm like, Oh, I have like five catcher in the rise. Like, do I need all these? I mean, right. I'm not going to read a a very specific book about a very specific thing that like, yeah, you know, it's like, I've already breezed through it. I don't need to keep it or whatever. Um, so I did go through that whole process of just sort of getting rid of books and also like a lot of like damage. I would keep like damaged books and never fix them. And I just was sort of like, I'm moving across the country. I'm spending thousands of dollars hauling things across the country. I just mm-hmm. cannot have all these books. So I kind of went through that process. And in a way, I kind of regretted a little bit. There's some stuff I wish I still had kept. But, you know, at the time I was feeling very liberated. Yeah. Um, and it made sense, but you know, I know, but it is, it is hard. And I think that it's, it's nice that you have now to look forward to kind of replacing and buying things that are, that are dear to your heart now. Yeah. I think it's a good thing. Also, I had to call the cops last night and this morning. Wait, okay. Okay. Here's the thing. I am so sick at this point in my life. I am so sick of trying to decide if something that's happening to me is happening because like that person's an asshole or because they're racist. Like, I'm just sick of trying to figure out, like, is this because I'm black? Wow. It is exhausting. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) It truly is exhausting. And I go through it every single day of my life. Um, So last night, just as I'm about to conk out, I see this huge light flashing across my yard. And I, of course, immediate thought, fire in the sky. I'm being abducted. (laughs) This is it. DB, sweetie. (laughs) Where are you? (laughs) DB, where are you? That was my first thought was like, it's happening. That's how bright that light was. Was like, I'm going to be lifted out of my house and into the sky. Oh, my God. And then I so I looked out the window and it was like a it looked like either an SUV or a pickup truck. And it was just kind of very slowly crawling in front of my house with a like a floodlight aimed out of the passenger window. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's the cops. Like, it looked like the cops. And then they, I heard them turn around in my driveway. And then they came back and did the same thing. <gasps> like a floodlight across my house, front of my house and into my yard. So I called the cops and I was like, hey, is there like some kind of criminal activity happening on my road? And the dispatcher was like, no. And I was like, okay. So I hung hung up. This morning I woke up. And when I tell you I was so mad, (laughs) I 
<laughs> just like she's like they're probably just patrolling and i was like okay okay but this morning i woke up and i just i can't even say that i was angry i was just so upset still yeah like that it ruined my sleep it made me super nervous because i'm like what is going on out there it just made me anxious and i didn't appreciate that so yeah. i called back this morning and this guy picks up i called the police and this guy picked up and I had to I had to type out what I was going to say on the notes app on my phone because I knew that if I didn't, I would cry while I was reading it. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Because that's what happens when I get upset. Like I just start being like, like my voice starts shaking. And I sound ridiculous. So but it was kind of badass that I called because I was like, hey, um, so here's my name. Here's my address. Last night around you know midnight, um, there was a police car. That was driving down my street, shining a flashlight into only my yard. And I just have to let you know that I don't appreciate it. And I said, you know, I understand that they have to patrol, but I don't feel safe when they do that. I feel like I'm being surveyed. I feel like I'm being watched. And I explained that to him, like, you know, I used to I grew up here and I'm familiar with, um, you know, how racism can work in this town. And I hope that's not what this is. I said, but you just need to know that I am a black woman who lives in a house by herself and I want to feel proud of where I live and I want to feel safe. And I just don't want them to be rolling by my house, shining a light at me and. Then I made sure to add that if they're trying to protect the rich assholes who built (laughs) houses in the woods behind me, who fucking hit their golf balls into my yard all day, then they're they're welcome to drive down their road and shine the light in their yard. I don't want it. And he was like, I totally hear you. I totally stand with you. Not what's happening. I understand. I'm so sorry. Like they were very nice about it. But I just... It just sucked. It just sucked that like I had to feel that way and that I have to feel that way and question it. And it makes me feel like I'm insane. Like it makes me feel like I'm starting shit when I'm just truly just like feeling unsafe. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I mean, honestly, like I, I don't I don't have any kind of experience like that, obviously. And I, you know, I can't even imagine what that must have felt like to just have a light like coming through your window while you're sleeping. It must have been crazy. I totally, totally love that you called him out on it and you are a member of that community. You pay taxes. So you should, you should fucking say that that's fucked up. So thank you. And it was, it it would have been different if I hadn't looked out the window and saw that it was only my house. Cause then I was like, are they going to try to rob me? Like, I don't know. Maybe it's not the cops. Like, I don't know who this is. Yeah. And then as they were leaving, I saw the the decal, Yeah. but it was fucking terrifying. I'm like, you know, I don't want to be scared. I don't want to feel fear. And, um, I don't mind being the, the weird lady in the house who calls the freaking police and tells them not to come over. I'll be the town weirdo. (laughs) That's the thing when he was like, yeah, I stand with you. And I'm like, I don't need your condescension. I just need you to not fucking patrol my house specifically. Because it wasn't even like you're patrolling the neighborhood. Right. You were patrolling my house. And it's not like I have like a fucking life size cutout of myself out on the fucking barn door that's like hey black lady lives here (laughs) introduce yourself as a person that patrols the community yeah once you introduce yourself you know that i'm a black woman and then you know not to do shit like that because it's triggering that's all i'm saying exactly i'm sorry that you went through that man like honestly it's terrifying and 
living by herself too. I mean, I couldn't have even imagined what you were thinking. So, oh yeah, I mean, I trust me. I went down. I popped that simply safe button so fast. I was like, beep, boop, beep, boop, beep. <laughs> like, make sure this shit's on. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, it was. It was actually kind of. It was unfortunate that I had to do it, but I felt good about doing it because I know that there was a time in my life where I would have sat with this feeling mm. and felt miserable in my own home and turned it inward. Yeah. And so I'm just really glad that, you know, I've had enough therapy and emotion, learned enough emotional tools that I could just be like, hey, you feel some of this shit, too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Good for you. And now if anything ever does happen in my house, no one's coming. So that's good to know. <laughs> They'll be like, oh, is that that bitch that said don't show up? Chauncey, Chauncey's coming back with a shiv. Oh, yeah. When, she, when you can't do shit about that. <laughs> when Chauncey shows up like fucking West Side Story, like <laughs> clapping and snapping fingers towards my fucking front door, they're going to be like, uh, I'm pretty sure you told us never to come to your house. So <laughs> goodbye. <God. laughs> I think we should start talking about our movies. Yes, yes, yes. It's finally time to reveal the theme. <laughs> what is it? All right. I'm going to reveal it and then I got to explain a little bit. Okay. I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> our theme this week is called More Trouble Than It's Worth. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so l- let me explain a little bit, perhaps. Mm hmm. So all of us are informed by film, right? Film, television, culture. And as Danielle talked about once in an episode from a couple weeks ago about the prep school movies, about how her vision of prep school was informed by all these movies and TV shows she watched about it. I think that And I don't want to speak for Danielle, but I'll just speak for myself. I think that my attitude towards threesomes and love triangles was informed by movies, too. Yes. And I I think we wanted to talk about this concept or this idea and try to, like, unpack it a little bit. Yes. And for both of these movies, they're they're taking place in a specific era in the 90s it just happens to be an era that danielle and i know a lot about because we came (laughs) of age in that time we lived it we lived it and i also think too that like there was sort of this like kind of um there was a lot of movies about this i think in the 90s right Mm because i keep i keep thinking about and it's not just three sums right meaning this isn't just about like three people who are having sex sometimes it's like a love triangle sometimes it's like three people who are involved in some kind of relationship or sexual situation and maybe no one, like they're not all sleeping together necessarily, I think is what I mean. Right. Yeah. The nineties had a lot of movies that were just like sex. What's up with that? Yeah. (laughs) And you know, there was stuff like there was a movie called threesome actually called threesome that I think had like Laura Flynn Boyle in it. And Josh Charles, whom we've talked about on this podcast many times and stuff like wild things. And then I realized that I don't know if you ever read this book, but do you remember the book, The Ethical Slut? Yeah. Did you ever read that book? I I read it like in the early 2000s, but that book came out, I think, in the late 90s. Yeah. 
And so part of me wondered if this was sort of something that people were just wanting to talk about. Because, I mean, right. obviously the concept of threesomes and love triangles is not it's not new. Right. No. It's been happening yeah. since the beginning of time, arguably. But since Pompeii, <laughs> since Pompeii, <laughs> since the dick directional signs in Pompeii, we, we have known threesomes and love triangles. But anyway, I think that the the idea of calling it more trouble than it's worth, I think, comes from. The idea that I always thought, wow, these are really complicated relationships. And it seems like every time I watch a movie about it or every time I, I never it's never like a successful, happy thing. It always seems like so um, tense and stressful and like, yeah, like a mess. It's always seems like a mess. And so I was always like. Man, this is more trouble than it's worth. Like even when watching Three's Company, which was like one of my favorite shows as a kid. Three's Company was stressful as fuck. Stressful because of the idea that Jack Tripper was pretending to be gay in order to live with two women. And then like, you know, Mr. Furley or the Ropers or however long this ruse lasted was was always like just about to be onto him and I'm always like, god, can't we just like have Male and female roommates. What is up with this show? But right. it was really funny. <laughs> um, so anyway, I think that that's kind of why it's titled "More Trouble Than It's Worth." Yeah. But I also think that the the concept of of the theme is something that I think you and I just were sort of wanting to, to like unpack a little bit, right? Absolutely. And I think that we we both kind of inadvertently chose movies from around the same time. Like, I don't think we were setting out originally to do that. But then when we did, we were like, "Ooh, look at this. This is great. Let's talk about this. And I also think that there's there's a point I'm going to talk about it when we get to my to my movie. But there's a character in my movie who kind of even asked the question um, if sex is more trouble than it's worth in general. Yes. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And look, I'm no no stranger to divulging many, many things about my life on this podcast. <laughs> but I'll just tell you, I have I've I have had all different kinds of relationships. Um, and I can tell you that now because right now in 2021, what year are we in? <laughs> like, what fucking year are we in? There is no year. Right now in 2021, I'm too tired for any of it. But <laughs> <laughs> but back when I had the energy and the give a shit, I dated men. I dated women. I was like, I've had open relationships. I've tried three. Like, I've tried fucking everything. And I think that the more trouble of it than it's worth for me now comes with directing that sexual energy into something else. And it's kind of it's not it's something I never expected in my life. Um, and that's not to say I'm not going to I will live to bone again. But right now, <laughs> it's just interesting to be in a space as someone who's like previously been very open with my sexuality and then kind of now i'm just like you know what i'd ra i truly would rather just go to sleep i truly would rather just take a nap i don't want to smell anyone's feet i don't want to like i don't want to unwrap a condom like i just don't want to do any of it i just don't <laughs> that completely makes sense and i uh honor that position okay thank you um but that's the thing, too, is that I've never I've never dabbled in polyamory or anything like that, but I have obviously no issue with it. I mean, you know, part of what I thought was fascinating about reading The Ethical Slut was just sort of the like 
I'm always interested in in reading about people having successful relationships, whether or not they're with multiple people or not. (laughs) Uh, And so I'm like, oh, this is such a great book. But it did drive home this point, which to me was like it's it's all about the communication and sort of being honest and that kind of stuff, which is work. Like if you think about it, it's work to to be very forthcoming and honest and open about things. So it's, it's, I think that it does require a little bit more work to be in generally just in relationships than it is being alone. Being alone is very easy, right? (laughs) No, no compromises. Completely. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I trust me, I talk about this in therapy all the time because I'm just like, you know what? Is it okay that I'm okay with it? Yeah. (laughs) Like, I feel like, again, the cultural implication is that I should feel bad for not wanting to date and get out there like you're letting yourself die on the vine or some kind of shit and i'm like i've never felt better my career's never been better my friendships have never been better i fucking love this part of my life right now you know i'm excited to kind of dive into it um, yeah because we got two i have not seen either of these movies Probably since the 90s. Yeah, it's been like 20 years. <laughs> oh, my God. It was like all the feelings came rushing back, like just everything about them. The clothes, <sighs> the looks, the hair. I mean, so Look. many Caesar haircuts. I mean, I just can't <laughs> believe it. it was- there is a scene in your film where somebody pulls an Orbitz drink out of a fridge and I almost <laughs> yes. fell on my floor. I almost lost my fucking mind. I'm like, what is she going to drink a Zima next? Like, what the fuck is going on? Clearly Canadian. Listen, even in the 90s, I was like, I am not putting those like gelatin balls. Thank you. In my body. Like, I don't know what they are. Nobody did. It's not even like boba. It's not even like a tapioca. It's like, I'm sure they're probably industrial sludge. (laughs) Or plastic balls and like just put them in your fucking mouth and you're like okay it's the 90s do you remember <laughs> i keep sending you videos from this guy um on i follow him on instagram but i think he's also big on tiktok um his name's kevin james thornton and oh, yeah. he does all of these hilarious videos and he always <laughs> all of his stories he's like tells these hilarious wonderful terrible stories and he's like it was the 90s <laughs> I know when he has that vocorder voice, which is so fucking funny. It's so good. He's like, I know it's gross, but it was the 90. Maybe that's that should be the AKA name for this episode. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to talk about your film. Oh my gosh, me too. I'm going first, right? Yeah. All right. So <laughs> My film for the theme, More Trouble Than It's Worth, is a movie from 1999. It was written and directed by Greg Araki, and it's called Splendor. I go practically a year without one decent date. Now I've got two potentials at the same time. Date them both, and then it's every man for himself. Look, cannot wait to talk about this movie. God. Insert the cardigans love fool here. Oh, my God. (laughs) Tell me about it. What is what is the most quintessential 90s soundtrack song, do you think? Oh, well, see, now you got me in a state because (laughs) it depends on what are we talking about? Early 90s, because we know early 
and late 90s are like two completely different worlds. This is true. Right? We can we can save this for a bonus episode too. Oh, we can definitely save us for the bonus. Let's think episode. about it and we'll save it for a bonus. Yes. And I'm such a nerd that I would make that distinction because talking about the 90s is one of my favorite things to do, as you know. Well, I will just say not only can I see you making the distinction between early and late 90s, I can already I can see in your eyes that you're already making that playlist. Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> I can't wait for it. Oh, my gosh. So I mentioned Greg Araki, the director of this movie. I think when we did episode 36, mm-hmm. which was when we talked about um, Cheryl Dunier's The Watermelon Woman and the new queer cinema mm-hmm. movement of the 90s. So Greg Araki was definitely a part of that movement. And he is a director that I personally very much associate with the 1990s. OK, yes. So. When I was in high school and in college in the 90s, he was the director that everyone I knew who was actually cool really liked. Right. We're not talking about like people that jumped on the Nirvana train. Right. I'm talking about like dyed in the wool, cool people who had beat up Doc Martens before anybody else. Exactly. The only one of the only people in the 90s who. I knew watched Greg Araki films who introduced me to Greg Araki films actually was a guy that my boyfriend at the time lived with. They shared a house and he was so like modern goth yes. that he had like the neon strip across the top of his closet. He wore suits everywhere. He looked like Peter Murphy and yes. watched the doom. We watched the doom generation and I was like, what the fuck's happening? You're so cool. What's going on? Oh my God. <laughs> I, I mean, hit like Greg Araki in the 90s, his movies were just like so it, they were so punk and queer and violent. And they always had like a bunch of hot young people who were cool and alternative. And they were like Jesus and Mary chain shirts and they had mm-hmm. Smith's posters up in their apartment and they were fucking alienated from the world. And it was the best like just so evocative and like he's probably best known for this trilogy that is called the teenage apocalypse trilogy which was his movies totally fucked up from 1993 the doom generation from 1995 and nowhere from 1997 okay and like you i remember watching the doom generation for the first time in high school and thinking that rose mcgallan had like the most amazing look in that movie yep And the guys in the film, James Duvall and Jonathan Sheck, were like impossibly beautiful. And they were both like showing their bodies and everybody was just sort of like hanging on each other and flirting and being like hot and dangerous while (laughs) shoegaze music was playing in the background. And it just was like so titillating and formative for I think a lot of people our age. Right. Definitely. And shocking, shocking, like a lot of shocking scenes in that movie. Completely. I mean, you know, as we talked about with like Natural Born Killers in that episode, I mean, a lot of 90s movies were ultra violent. and They were very stylized, violent. Mm-hmm. And I think that Greg Rocky movies are a part of that, obviously. But there was just something else going on. I mean, it was basically like Greg Rocky himself seemed extremely cool. Like he he was this queer punk rock Japanese director from L.A. And he was making these like really sexy alternative movies and his vibe and just like everything about these movies seemed very attractive and 
like I said, very highly stylized to me when I was a young person. So cut to Splendor, okay, which came out at the tail end of the 90s after he had made like a lot of his well-known movies. And when this movie came out, I was working as a music director at my college radio station. And I remember being sent the soundtrack, Ugh. which I played nonstop because I had a Britpop radio show called Hang the DJ. Oh, my God. And on the soundtrack, it was like all the bands that Ugh. I loved, like Slow Dive and Suede and Lush and Blur and Spiritualize. And there was all these yes. like remixes of things. And. And then I remember, so I put that in heavy rotation immediately, but then I was like, what is this movie? And I, and the movie finally came to the campus movie theater. And to me, it just felt so exactly of the moment in terms of like the style and the people in it. And I, I swear, like I said at the beginning, having seen this movie for the first time since like 1999, every single feeling came rushing back. Oh, girl. I this was a first time watch for me. Yeah. And as soon almost I would say within three minutes of this movie starting, I felt like I was a teenager back in my bedroom. Like I felt so in that era, which is a credit to it. It's not saying that it's dated or anything. It's a credit to how stylized it is and how of the moment it is. I completely agree. I feel the same way. I was right there with you. Yeah. And it's so funny because I remember In 1999, looking around and going, I will never have nostalgia for anything. Oh, yeah. Like this, this, this is such a weird moment. It was like an intersection of like Britpop and like kind of like techno music. There was a lot of like techno music coming out of England. And 70s nostalgia mixed in with present day shit. (laughs) Yeah, it was like kind of the like weird intersection of like tarantino 70s inspired stuff and then like new millennium stuff like techno and djs a lot of dj culture but then like there was like brit pop i mean it was just like really bizarre and i just remember looking around being like what is this vacant time i'm living in but wouldn't you know in 2021 i watch a fucking movie from 99 and i'm like oh my god i miss those days crazy I know. In 1999, I would never have thought I could be more bored or unsettled than I was. And 20 (laughs) years later, here comes 2020 to be like, guess what, motherfucker? (laughs) Really fucking our shit up time. So one sentence synopsis of Splendor. A single girl cannot decide between two new potential suitors So she decides to date them both at the same time until a pregnancy throws a big curveball into the mix. Beautiful. Thank you. Short and sweet. So, okay, Splendor is centered around a young woman named Veronica. She is played by the actress Kathleen Robertson. And in this film, Veronica, there's like a narration that she provides. It's kind of a straight at the camera kind of confessional type thing Mm -hmm. and i swear i was like who is this luminous beautiful young woman of the late 90s i know she's so cute well and it's like she had the look yes of 
whatever this woman was in this era, it, you know who it reminded me of? It reminded me of the lead singer of the Cardigans. There you go. <laughs> like that look, uh, that kind of like, I don't know what that look is. It's like a ethereal um, Scandinavian <laughs> mod look. <laughs> well, I don't know. If I'm a Scandinavian <laughs> ghost. <laughs> a Scandinavian ghost. <laughs> well, well whatever it was it was not me no and it, but it worked it worked yes i wouldn't dare show a picture of myself from 99 unless i absolutely had to i would show a picture because i want to see what my original eyebrows look like <laughs> but veronica's gorgeous and you know here's the thing it's it's that it's that setup where Apparently she hasn't had sex or dated in a long time, which I'm like, give me a break. But you know what? It does happen. Beautiful people sometimes go through dry spells. Okay. So on Halloween night, she goes out with her best friend, Mike, who is played by the Scottish actress, Kelly McDonald. Fantastic role. Fantastic. Mike herself. Another very cute late 90s look. She had the very short hair that was like dyed purple mm-hmm. you know thin, the thin eyebrows i think she's probably wearing like black lipstick or something in some scene a lot of glitter you know they're great together so they go to this club they're wearing their halloween costumes and veronica meets two separate guys like two different guys at the party at separate times one is the drummer for the band who's playing the party his name is zed he's played by matt Kiesler, and he's just this tall, gorgeous blonde with the rippling abs and the spiky blonde hair and the bondage pants. I mean, he looks like he is in No Doubt, the band No Doubt, (laughs) (laughs) which again was like very triggering. No, and this takes place in LA, so it's still a look that you see there to this day. Yes. Oh my God, exactly. So he's like this hot musician. But a bit of a dumb dumb, got to admit, he's a sweet little dummy. But nonetheless, she sees him on stage. And then like 10 minutes later, she has sex with him in the bathroom of the club. OK, just like walking sex. This guy Zed. So the other guy she meets at the party is this dark haired guy, a music writer named Abel. And he's played by Jonathan Sheck. In the high Jonathan Sheck era. Yes. Remember? Yes. With those eyes and those lips. Come on. It's all over the place. You could not get away from him for seven years minimum. (laughs) He was in Greg Araki movies before this one. So he was he's been around, uh, especially in this universe, this Greg Araki universe. And listen, he is equally gorgeous, obviously. But he is definitely more of the like sensitive, brooding type. He's like a writer, like a music writer. But then he's trying to write a book or something. And like, he's not the kind of like sexy dum-dum. He's just kind of like a thought, the thoughtful, dark haired guy with glasses. Okay. But he asks for her number at the party and then they eventually go on a date and they have this like pretty soulful connection. And, you know, she's liking him, too. Okay, so she's got these two guys, very different. And wouldn't you know, she falls for both of them. Okay, and that's not a surprise. Like when you've got like two 
hot dudes who are incredibly different, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm in a pickle. Well, especially post dry spell. Like I kind of appreciated that about this movie that it's like she hasn't been in on a date in a year and she's not immediately just jumping into one. She's still dating. She's not just jumping into one relationship and calling it a day. Yes. And we get to see guys on in film do that all the time. But in the ni- late 90s, we weren't seeing a lot of women doing that. Right. And that's kind of, I think, what is a great part of this movie is this idea that she wants to date them both. And she's basically like, all right, let's figure out how to do this. And again, maybe in a modern context, this seems like not a big deal. But back then, to me, seeing a woman with that kind of sexual agency, I think Mm -hmm. it was really refreshing. Like, I just you never really saw that a lot. Um, The interesting thing is, is that she presents the idea to both Zed and Abel. And Abel is the one that kind of has the initial problem with it. Um, But then they both sort of warm up to this idea of being her boyfriends. Yeah. Essentially. And one night the three of them are together at Veronica's place and they're drinking, they're hanging out and they're playing very, you know, cheeky little truth or dare games. And they all end up sleeping together, mm-hmm. you know? So then you start seeing their relationship, which I'm not going to lie. This is a straight girl dream <laughs> to be in this perfectly <laughs> content and non-chaotic romance with two attractive sweet guys who seem very chill with each other, right? Right. At some point, Zed, I think, you know, was living with his friends and then he gets kicked out of his place and ends up moving in with Veronica. And then April's like, well, what about me? And then he comes in and mo- and they all live together. <laughs> He's like just jealous. He's like, wait a minute. Yeah, I want to live with you guys. And they live together. And, you know... And at one point, it seems, wow, they really figured it out. Like they figured out how to be a thruple or be together. But then, as you do, a wrench gets thrown in into the happiness. And basically, Veronica finds out she's pregnant. And I think it's at this point of the movie where she kind of begins to question the strength of this um, this unconventional relationship experiment. Right. Because prior to this, everyone is very adamant about being in it. They're not ashamed of it. They're just like, this is who we are. And this is how we explore our sexuality and our, you know, romantic feelings. But then she has a baby coming and then she's just like, I don't know if this works. Right. And and it's mostly because they're all like 22 years old and they aren't working very much. And, you know, they're just like, is this an actual functioning adult relationship or is it just like young 22 year olds hanging out and having a lot of fun? Right. Right. Because there was a moment where this actually made me laugh. It was one of the truest, I think, moments that I've ever seen in a film. And I don't know why I think this, but Veronica breaks the news to the guys that she's pregnant and said, pauses and then says, well, Bjork has a kid. Yes! <laughs> That's in my notes! And I was like, oh my God, I can totally imagine like a 22-year-old guy <laughs> musician just being like, oh, there's a baby here? Well, Bjork has a kid. <laughs> Bjork's still rocking. Sugar cubes are still on point. What's up? Like young people oh, cannot figure out an actual situation. They're like, well, if this famous person has a baby, I guess we can. I completely agree. That part, that line 
not only did it make me laugh, but you're absolutely true that I'm like, these are very young people trying to make a very adult decision and rationalizing it in the weirdest possible way. It was so funny. So they start exploring the outcomes of what could happen, you know, Um, whether or not she wants to keep the baby or, you know, whatever. And she starts hanging out with this director on one of her acting jobs named Ernest, who is played by Eric Mabius, whom I don't know if you know this. He played Steve in Welcome to the Dollhouse. Yep. The Steve, 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 you will fall in love with me, Steve. Very different look. He's he, he cut off the Tarzan hair and he looks he's got the Caesary comb front hair. Was like I was like, oh, my God, this hair is sending me the hair combined with the goatee. I had a 90s horror moment flashback. Oh, my God. And the color contact lenses. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about it. I used to work for an optometrist and I would get samples for free. And when I, this is when I lived in near um, San Francisco and I would put them in when I went out drinking with my friends at night and be like, hey, guys, like freak them out. <laughs> but he wore them for real. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like that was such a huge thing. Like people with those like really almost like artificial looking contact lenses almost his <laughs> eyes were so blue they were purple <laughs> you know what i'm so glad that they actually showed him taking them out at night because i was yes. like this guy's tripping if he's trying to pass off those eyes <laughs> is real like come on but anyway uh, he you know veronica's like hanging out with this guy and she starts thinking, you know, look, this guy is stable and he has money and he could actually give me and this child a, a stable life, which is something that I never experienced growing up. And she's like thinking, well, you know, obviously I don't really love him, but he could help me with this. And I think that this is a better arrangement than having a baby with two boyfriends, one of whom is unemployed. Um, or keeps getting fired from jobs or what you know, like, yeah, you know, it's these, these are both kind of like un underemployed men. Right. But what I think is interesting about this movie, too, is that there's just this very interesting gender role reversal going on where she is the one who doesn't know what she wants. Right. Mm-hmm. And the guys, I mean, if you want to get down to it, even Ernest, even zed and abel they're very attentive and they want to be in her life and they care about her and they've made their intentions very clear like both zed and abel are like we're here for you we want to have this baby together like i will go with you to your doctor's appointments and she's in the mode where she's like i don't know what to do and she keeps kind of avoiding the situation mm-hmm. you know by like kind of running off a little bit right yeah the only person having a rational response to her news is Mike. Yes. Who, when she finds out, when she tells, when Veronica tells Mike she's pregnant, Mike screams at the top of her lungs. But I just think in, in this time in the 90s, I mean, honestly, it's just a really interesting setup in terms of thinking about, like I said, sexual agency of women and polyamory and masculinity. Certainly it's just, you know, it was very forward thinking in 1999, I think. But like you said, ultimately 
Um, Because I'm not going to give away the ending. It's just, hello, it's us. We don't give away the endings, right? Um, Unless it's the Lost Boys. Let's get serious. (laughs) But what I think sets this movie apart from a lot of Greg Rocky's movies, it's not as, it's totally so different. It's not violent and dark and sort of that like lovers on the run alienated from the world type of thing. It's very light and fun. Mm-hmm. And it, it does remind me of a, like an old screwball comedy from the, you know, thirties and forties. And honestly, I think um, I know we do double features on this podcast, but if you wanted to make another good double feature, play this movie alongside like something like design for living by Ernest Lubitsch, like some kind of like, that's another movie that's about three people attempting to have a relationship, right? It's like a woman and two men. And it would be perfect to play with this because this movie does kind of feel like that. It's not um, it's not very dark. It's it's very effervescent. And I I have to say, like, again, I this is my first time watching this movie. And when you were like, this is the movie I want to watch for this. I was like, all right, let me psych myself up. I don't know if I'm in the mood for a Gregor Rocky film right now. Because I'm thinking, again, like Mysterious Skin. Yeah, Living End. <laughs> like all these films that are beautiful, but heavy, heavy. Yeah. And I was like, all right, all right. And then when I started watching it and I'm like, ah, this is great. It's lovely. It's light. Great. Good pick. It was such a beautiful pick for this for this yeah. theme. And I'm so grateful that you did pick it. So I got to see it. Yeah. And, I, and, and for the theme of more trouble than it's worth, uh, it does seem like it is worth it. Like at the end of the day, you're like, oh, this it, this is worth to explore this, you know, potentially great, like fulfilling relationship with two other people. Then you have my movie. Ooh. <laughs> this is my Orson <laughs> Welles slow clap from Citizen Kane. Wow. Oh, I can't wait. So my movie for the theme of More Trouble Than It's Worth, was released in 1998, written and directed by Don Roos, and it's the opposite of sex. She's stealing a boyfriend. I knew you were trouble. And she's just getting started. You're pregnant? When I recommended that we watch this for the theme, it's because I was thinking about one very specific arrangement in the movie. But then as I watched it, I was like, no, there's more. There's more here. Yes. And it was nice to uncover it, like the layers of this film. Um, but before we get into talking about the movie itself, I just want to say that Don Ruse is married to Dan Bukatinsky, mm. who, if you watched um, the comeback of one of many of his credits, yes. but if you watch the comeback, then you know who Dan Bukatinsky is. He's a fantastic, funny actor. Um, but he also wrote some of your favorite movies. Yep. He wrote Marley and Me. He wrote Boys on the Side. And most importantly to me, he wrote Single White Female. Yes, yes. He introduced the term into the lexicon. Yes. Through film. Uh, So, yes, he is, like you said earlier, he is a, a, he's gay. He is a director. He's a writer. He's an actor. And he was pretty important as well and not necessarily the um, like a really structured way, but he was a leading voice in queer cinema um, in the late 90s, mm-hmm. mid to late 90s for sure. Um, and he's still working, still making stuff. But we're focusing on this movie, which is so goddamn funny. Yes. But I also have to say, I have to place it in our It Was the 90s framework 
because some of the stuff I heard in this film like truly set me back. I was like, whoa, whoa. Mm-hmm. like my sensitivity meter was was pretty. It's pretty high. Yes. Um, but I was even shocked by some of the stuff that I did not remember hearing. And so I just wanted to to to, to preface it a little bit by saying that um, let's get into the cast. So Christina Ricci plays Dee Dee Truitt, who is awful. Yes. Truly awful. Um, she is a homophobic, ignorant, brash, like emotionless 16 year old. You've got Martin Donovan, who plays Bill Truitt, her half brother. Uh, he's a high school English teacher. He's very chill. Uh, he seems to be beloved by the students. And he had a lover by the name of Tom who died of AIDS. Mm-hmm. Then you have Lisa Kudrow, who plays Lucia Delory. And she is fucking awesome. Also the worst, but not in the same way as Dee Dee. <laughs> she's Tom's sister, and she's also a high school teacher. She actually introduced Tom and Bill. Um, and she is sick of the world and everyone in it in a way that I have never seen like on film before. Yeah. It is stunning. There's one point where someone asks, how does a woman get so bitter? And she just says, observation. <laughs> she's wonderful. Wow, yeah. Then you have Matt. Uh, Matt is Bill's new boyfriend, new young boyfriend, very cute, dimple chin, um, not terribly smart. At one point, Dee Dee says that watching him is like watching evolution work. (laughs) And then you have Carl, and Carl is played by (laughs) Lyle Lovett, and he plays uh, Sheriff, Sheriff Carl Tippett, who is uh, in the background of this film and then becomes kind of a, a, a part of the ride uh, because of a certain incident. So a brief synopsis of this film is a one sentence synopsis. A chaos demon in the form of a 16 year old girl wreaks havoc on her distant family to hide her pregnancy. Chaos demon. Demon. She truly is a chaos demon. No kidding. Dee Dee is such a brash character. And she's from Crevcore, Louisiana. And in the beginning of this film, she just kicks the door. She basically just kicks the door in of her personality from jump, uh, which is showing up almost late to her stepfather's funeral. And then when her mother insists that she, you know, give her respects over the grave and throw some dirt on the casket, she gets up and just starts throwing a fucking tantrum, starts throwing things in the grave. She's throwing chair. She's throwing flour. (laughs) She's kicking (laughs) dirt in there. She's just a total brat. So she runs away from home to Indiana to spend some time with Bill, her half brother. So her father uh, had a child before her and it was Bill. And she, again, gird your loins because the way she describes her gay brother is not kind, Mm. but (laughs) is also, I think what Don Roos was trying to do was just kind of, again, like bring to the surface this ignorant character's predilection for like, you're just being so so enmeshed in her own bullshit. Yeah. Like she just truly likes herself the way she is. She has no no desire to change. She's the narrator of the film, and she's very quick to tell you that she does not grow a heart of gold by the end. <laughs> she's not going to change. Yes, like don't ask her for shit. So when she shows up in Indiana, she kind of she lies. She lies. She's just like, hey, things are tough at home. I need a place to stay. And Bill being person with a heart of gold 
played by Martin Donovan, who is just Ooh. a gem. We talked about him in the uh, insomnia episode a couple weeks ago. And he lets her stay. He calls her mom and is like, you know, she's with me. It's cool. And the first thing she does is seduce his boyfriend, Matt. Yep. The first thing she does. So she seduces Matt and then she's instantly pregnant. Like instantly. She's like, oh, I'm late. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And Matt, as a gay man who has never slept with a woman before and is not necessarily like the brightest bulb in the lamp, uh, is like, OK, <laughs> like, I guess we're going to do this thing. Right. So their response is to rob Bill. They rob his safety deposit box after they tell him we're in love and he, we're going to raise his baby. And Bill's like heartbroken. Lucia loses her mind. And they do. They leave. They leave. So you're left with Bill for a moment, just kind of going through this heartbreak while Lucia is very close to him in a way that feels like she might, you know, like have a crush on him or like she's into him in a way that's not purely friendship. Mm -hmm. um, and it it's kind of presented as something that's very sad, <laughs> you know, like very like her life has kind of been put on hold in a way. But she's very into Bill's life and kind of telling him what to do. Like she really likes being in charge of his life. Mm -hmm. um, so when Jason Bach shows up, who's played by mm -hmm. <laughs> Johnny Galecki, who I have to say, he plays gay like in such a fey 90s way that it was so obvious and like a little bit jarring and disconcerting to me mm -hmm. where I'm like oh you're like not just gay you're just kind of playing he was just playing it up a lot so this Jason Bach shows up who's a former student of Bill's and he's like hey I'm also Matt's boyfriend and if you don't tell me where he is I'm going to tell everyone that you molested me when I was a student and Bill's like I have no fucking idea where he is and goodbye right but then Jason calls his bluff and actually does like he basically tells a lie and says that he was molested by Mr. Truitt by Bill Truitt when he was a student and Bill's put on notice and his job is threatened um and it's a total scandal it is a total scandal he's suspended with pay but it's a complete scandal. And part of the reason that he's he's not really bothered by it, um, because Tom was a stockbroker who left him this big, gorgeous house when he died. Um, so he kind of just starts gardening, <laughs> like hanging out in his yard. Mm -hmm. But what I noticed was kind of really melancholy about it was that you get this feeling through Bill that he's had to brush things under the rug a lot in his life yes. in order to get by. And that was the kind of sadness of, of those moments is that like, oh, God, he's done this so much. This is just like secondhand to him. Yeah, you can. First of all, Martin Donovan, I just I know we just talked about him recently, but like he is such a treasure. Like he as an actor is he's so good. And he's been to me, he's like one of the best actors of the 90s i know he still works yes. obviously but like he really reminds me of the 90s too of like the hell hartley movies and everything and like his character in this film it's like you know obviously Dee's character is so high key just mm -hmm. always really over the top in so many ways and he's kind of this like metronome for all of the stuff that's happening where He's just kind of the steady ship. And yes. he, there is a sadness to 
this idea of of maybe that this was his coping mechanism for all of the pain and loss that he's experienced in his life is that, you know, he's there's a big speech that comes towards the end, which kind of puts all of that in perspective. But like basically, you know, yeah, he's basically had to just sort of bury a lot of feelings about things. And he just sort of knows how to he's kind of self-contained and he knows how to deal with his own issues in a very kind of quiet and muted way. Right. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it, because it is kind of sad and self-contained and and but it doesn't I don't get the feeling that his life is bad, just that there's a real undercurrent of emotion there that he's he's holding back a lot and that he will continue to do so in order to get by. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bill is in for a fucking ride because (laughs) (laughs) he's suspended from school. Um, He gets a call from Matt. And Matt's like, uh, we're in L.A. and I need some money. So Bill decides to go to L.A. and he thinks he's going to drag Matt home. And guess what? Lucia's going with him. And guess what? Carl's following them. The cop is following them. (laughs) (laughs) And Carl is following them because he's it's twofold. It's like he clearly has a thing for Lucia that she cannot see. But also he's like, um, you're kind of a convicted criminal. (laughs) Like You're kind of going to be a convicted criminal. So you can't leave the state just in case we decide to arrest you. Yeah. So he follows them for reasons personal and professional. And once they're in L.A., they find Matt working at this like fast food restaurant. They set up a meeting. Dee Dee comes through. She's like, <laughs> she says she's three months pregnant, but she is clearly six months pregnant. <laughs> right. She is showing so much. And they have this dinner and she like is trying to extort money out of bill and when he says no she's like um well surprise and she pulls out tom's urn and his ashes are gone she's <laughs> holding his ashes hostage um so yeah so there's this whole from there all hell truly breaks loose it is truly. like a caper that i cannot even begin to get into without ruining so i won't but it is so funny and beautiful and heartbreaking and uplifting and it does this really cool trick of doing all of that work um in this film that you think is just going to be about this asshole (laughs) and then it ends up being like a real heart-tugging movie I know I said that I talk about it when we were talking earlier, but I think that Lucia has this speech at the end. And what was so stunning about the speech, because she's kind of going through like, you know, is sex worth it? And then she gets to this point in talking through her feelings um, where she says, you know, sex killed Tom. Like, didn't it? Didn't sex kill Tom? And um, God, it's so sad. And then you realize that she's kind of been afraid to have sex or to open up or be close to someone because her brother was the person she was closest to in this world. Right. And so they show them, you know, he was so good to her. She's kind of the black sheep of her family. Um, She knows that people don't like her, but her brother loved her. And so her loss and grief, you realize that she hasn't processed it either. Yeah. Um, so her holding back and kind of questioning, is it worth it um, or it's more is this, you know, sex more trouble than it's worth? Because it really it all it only leads to relationships or babies right. um, in her words. So it's just kind of nice to see 
to see her question that openly is something I don't really see on screen a lot. Um, but then also as you as you're going through it through the movie, and I think it really fits well with the it, more trouble than it's worth theme, because it could be applied to family. Is family worth it? <laughs> like, is it worth it to let this half sister I don't know into my life? only for her to fuck everything up. But then Bill gets to a point where even he has this heart opening moment about what Dee Dee's life has been and, you know, her circumstances and, you know, wanting to help her uh, through some of her hardship. And there's also a bunch of love triangles in this movie. So you've got totally. <laughs> Dee Dee, Matt and Bill, but then you've also got Matt, <laughs> Jason and Bill, and then you've got Lucia, Carl well, actually, Lucia and Carl aren't really in a love triangle. Well, but like you you got Lucia in a love triangle with Bill and maybe her brother. Maybe Tom. And maybe Tom. Like, that's a thing. And then you have Carl who likes Lucia, but then she likes Bill. So it's just kind of like it's a lot of triangles. A it's lot. a lot going on. Also, I absolutely love how Dee Dee only refers to Tom as Tom the dead guy. Yes. <laughs> She is remarkably cruel. It's really crazy how mean she is. (laughs) And also just to put this in in a little bit more context, Christina Ricci basically went from being Wednesday Adams to this. I I can't remember if she did Buffalo 66 before or after. She was in Buffalo 66 the year after this movie came out. So, okay, this was the the moment that Christina Ricci came out of that like little girl child actor shell into this whole other realm where she was, you know, basically like dyed her hair blonde and was wearing like the low cut tops. And she was playing these very adult roles. And, you know, this was definitely one of those movies that she was like, it was almost shocking to see her uh, grown up like this. You know, completely like if she came out with a bang, she's like, hi, these are the movies I want to do now. And I'm like, good for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I I remember being completely shocked by it. But I remember when this movie came out because I remember the poster of it was she was wearing the bathing suit. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, you were just in mermaids, weren't you? Now I can't even <laughs> I don't even know who this is. <laughs> Weren't you just falling off a log while your sister had sex upstairs in a (laughs) convent? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The one thing I do love about this film, and again, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give away too many. Well, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I think this might not be a spoiler to say that it really does answer the question of are these things more trouble than they're worth in the end? And the answer is surprising and lovely and and right. and interesting. And it's just this movie is just such a ride. I read the Janet Maslin New York Times interview from when this came out, her review, and she calls it a comedy of unspeakably bad manners. Oh, yes. And um, she's completely right. But it's just so it's such a weird movie to see like a really rotten character <laughs> who's like i am not going to be redeemed at the end of this and it still ends up being a fun and great ride and it's so 90s i can't even stand it like the chunky platform heel oh my um, gosh <laughs> with a big cuff jean like i just it's so 90s yes the piercings the i mean just everything about it i mean it like i remember seeing this movie when it came out in the movie theater and i just yeah, it took me back to a place that I was like, holy shit. Like, 
And and I think it's interesting too because so much of what I think is happening in this movie is that so you do have the the love triangles that are happening or just sort of the triads of people and they're all sort of individually trying to form like a valuation on both love and sex, right? Because mm-hmm. some relationships seem to be more sexually oriented and some are more of a love or a deeper connection. And I just like that part about the movie is this kind of like, that's kind of flowing through all of these different characters. Yeah. And that to me is, is a really cool storytelling technique, but also too, I mean, I think it's very obvious that, you know, a queer person directed this movie again in the nineties, a lot, a lot of, you know, the conversation was about AIDS and about HIV and the, and the, the crisis and sort of the fear of things in that era. Yes. And I think that that is obviously a big part of this movie and the Christina Ricci character. And that's very of its time. You know, I think mm-hmm. a gay director making a movie about AIDS in this era, I think comple- it completely tracks. Right. Right. It, it felt like even though Tom had died and you never get to meet that character, most of the movie is a celebration of his life. Like you get to see the people who loved him still loving him even after he's gone. And so I guess it's not a celebration of his life, but I think it's it's a validation of his life, which we didn't get to see a lot of um, in, in that time. And it's like, you know, you have your Philadelphias where you have to sh- show people slowly dying of AIDS. and But you never got to see, or, you know, in a lot of films, you weren't getting to see just the kind of joy that people had and the love that they had before, you know, they were they were killed by this disease. You know, I'll I'll never know, obviously, what Don Roos was thinking about when he was writing this movie. But, you know, I think that there, he was probably I mean, the attitudes towards the disease in the 90s were so I mean, compared to modern sensibility. I mean, it's very mm-hmm. it was it's very hardcore. And I and you have to imagine maybe, you know, this is a gay director kind of working through the feelings of that kind of ignorance. You know what I mean? Absolutely, because this is a disease that, that that ignorance killed people. It killed thousands, hundreds of thousands. It killed a lot of people. Right. And, you know, to look at TV today and see ads for medication to manage HIV. My gosh. I mean, I just want to cry every time I see it because I'm just like amazed at how far we've come in that way. Again, still a long way to go. But this absolutely was kind of a a... And again, don't know what he was thinking, but this was absolutely a different way of thinking through the fears and the joys and kind of taking all of that fear about life and and death and kind of putting it into a movie in a very interesting way that I haven't really seen before. Yeah. Well, what's uh, what's going to be happening next week? For our movies. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Wow. Next week. Are you ready? Here are your movies. We've got I Love You to Death from 1990 and River's Edge from 1986. Oh, the theme is not what you think, probably. But (laughs) you guys are smart. (laughs) Go ahead and guess. I think someone will guess this one inadvertently i mean it it seems a little bit easier than other weeks i'll just say that but but is it never know (laughs) who knows who knows but um listen if you want to email us as always we're at i saw what you did pod at gmail.com 
And you can find us on our social media at I Saw Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Plus, we've got merch. I saw what you did merch, in fact, in the Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. Wouldn't it be great if we had merch from like another show in there? (laughs) (laughs) We've got merch from Wicked Words. Yes. (laughs) Go ahead in there. And they do. They do have merch. Buy their merch, too. Yes, Um, yes, yes. And if you want even more from us, of course, we've got a bunch of bonus episodes up at Stitcher Premium and only at Stitcher Premium exclusively. Uh, You can use the promo code SAW for a free month. And we're so grateful because so many people have been telling us they've been signing up for Stitcher Premium and supporting us. And thank you so much. Um, But it's the only place to listen to our bonus episodes, which we are now pivoting to mostly reading our listener mail. Yes. So and they are. So fun to do. We love doing the bonus episodes in the mailbag. So, well, Danielle, thank you so much for this episode. I know it was a little sticky, but we, I think, did a great job trying to, you know, play some movies we hadn't seen in a while and talk about some good old fashioned 90s drama. I agree. Goodbye. Bye. See you next week. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. Email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 